Hello, this is Gary Wells, and you are listening to The American Farewell, Episode 4, Taxes and Debt and Other Fun Stuff. It's Monday, the 16th of May, 2022. On today's podcast, we will be talking about what is perhaps the most commonly cited reason for the American Revolution against Great Britain, taxes. Here's a little fun fact for you. Unjust taxes were only one tiny thing included way down on the list of grievances which are to be found in the Declaration of Independence. Among other injustices listed were the withholding by the king of approval for various laws that the colonials wished to pass, the dismissal of representative bodies in various territories, interfering with judges and the courts, and restricting trade between the colonies and other nations. These grievances were listed in response to such trials and tribulations as the Plantation Act, the Townsend Act, the Quebec Act, the Massachusetts Government Act. Well, you get the idea. Just a whole bunch of acts. Basically, the king was just doing whatever he felt like with regard to the colonies, and they were given no recourse to manage themselves. Levying burdensome taxes was just the icing on a really crappy cake. So why do we end up talking about taxes as such a big, important issue for the colonials? Well, for one thing, several of the most renowned acts of rebellion were associated with the imposition of taxes. It's easy to find images of Bostonians, disguised as indigenous persons for some reason, throwing boxes of tea off of a British ship. Also, the gathering complaints by the colonials reached a fevered pitch just at the time that certain new taxes were being set up. But in all honesty, the chief reason that we still talk about taxes more than many other causes for the rebellion is that quite a few of the other problems which the colonials faced while under the rule of the king were addressed with the ratification of the Constitution. That's why you have the language that you see in Articles 1 through 3 to specify the establishment of and restrictions on Congress and the Senate, the Presidency, and the Supreme Court. All branches of government now beholden, to some degree or another, to the people. There would clearly be no reason to keep talking about those grievances which had thus been resolved back in the 1700s. Now, there are other grievances from colonial times which are still hotly debated issues today. These were optimistically addressed in the Bill of Rights, the freedom of speech and the press, the right of assembly, the right to a fair trial by jury, and so forth. These were included in the Bill of Rights as an attempt to address grievances which were impositions upon individuals by the government. But what's missing here? Among the items that were listed as grievances in the Declaration of Independence, which one of the big grievances is not fully alleviated by the Constitution or the Bill of Rights? taxes. There is no part of the Bill of Rights which addresses the assessing of taxes on the individual by the government. In fact, Article 1 of the Constitution quite clearly grants Congress the power to impose taxes, more or less at their discretion. Doesn't that seem odd, that the new American government did not limit the right of the federal government to impose taxes? When you consider the fact that violent actions were taken in response to taxes imposed by the king, it should appear strange that the Bill of Rights does not put a limit on the American government's ability to tax its citizens. Before we go too far here, we should recognize that the colonial's grievance was not simply over taxes. 
their actual grievance had been, say it with me now, taxation without representation. That was the actual problem, not taxes in and of themselves. The burden, as the colonials saw it, was that they were required to add to the king's coffers without having adequate say in how they were governed. With the creation of elected officials within the colonies, we now had representation, in theory anyway. We'll be addressing that in another podcast very soon. However, as we had been saying, even with a break from the king, the colonial government still recognized the necessity of taxes to pay for the army, to pay for the courts, to pay for the National Legislative Assembly, to pay for outstanding debts to those who financed the revolution, to subsidize a national postal service and the roads they used, and so on. All of these require the collection of money from the citizens in some form or another. Taxation was a familiar means of doing that. Since socialism had not yet been invented, the early American government just went along with the recognized system of taxation. Income tax was not a familiar tax in those times. Most taxes were levied on goods or services or property. For instance, the British Stamp Act levied a tax on many forms of legal documents, permits, newspapers, and playing cards. Yes, playing cards. What else are you going to do when there's no streaming services? Tariffs, or taxes on goods coming in from overseas, were actually the largest source of revenue for the federal government for more than 100 years. In the early stages of colonial development, tariffs helped manufacturers and producers on this side of the Atlantic by making imported goods more expensive. However, over time, Britain asserted tariffs on their own things, like tea, tobacco, and cotton, which had an adverse effect on the southern states. Therefore, alternative to tariffs were sought. There were early attempts to impose an income tax, most notably during the Civil War, but such a tax was actually ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court in 1895. Less than 20 years later, though, the states ratified the 16th Amendment, allowing Congress to levy a federal income tax on its citizens. And we haven't looked back since. Income taxes from U.S. citizens now provide the greatest portion of revenue to the federal government. Which makes sense, doesn't it? It's our country. We should each take a slice of responsibility in paying for our national expenses, right? Well, there have always been arguments over the fairness of taxes. Tariffs and excise taxes were described as unfair to the poor since they had little or no income but still needed basic necessities which were being taxed. Income taxes were seen as unjust since they have often been imposed to a greater degree on people who had higher earnings from their labors. For this reason, the U.S. tax code has been in flux. As various interests placed their case in front of their representatives, their representatives have made adjustments to the tax code in their constituents' favor. That's what you get when you have taxation with representation, see? Within the U.S. tax code, there are hundreds of exclusions and deductions and credits and rebates. As a result, there are a lot of people and corporations who don't pay taxes or don't pay their, quote, fair share, end quote. If you pay anything close to your standard listed rate of taxation for your gross income, you're a fool, a simpleton, an idiot. Why should you pay your full tax assessment when most other people aren't? 
And that's just the legal ways of dodging your share of taxes. Many people simply don't submit any tax forms, or they submit falsified forms. There is a broad fear of the IRS and what they might do if they catch you cheating. Some pretty notorious criminals were brought down on tax evasion when other legal pursuits failed to put them behind bars. But that's actually quite rare. The average Joe or Jane can cheat a little here and there. Do you really have proof of all of those charitable contributions you said you made? But almost no one is ever going to care. Essentially, you don't really have to pay your fair share of taxes if you don't want to. If the IRS does come calling, you can typically work out a repayment plan. Easy peasy. But there are other consequences for this broadly accepted practice of cutting your share of taxes. When our nation started, we were collectively deep in debt. But over the long haul, we were able to pay off the national debt in the early 1800s. Unfortunately, that didn't last long. Through various recessions, wars, and programs of national expansion, not to mention the aforementioned tax breaks, the U.S. debt started to grow again. For a long time, it never really outpaced, by a great amount, the national GDP. You can loosely define that as our collective ability to generate money to pay for things. The national debt just became a constant factor in the national budget. Then, in the early 1980s, something really scary started to happen. We found ourselves in a recession and a new tactic was made to attempt to stimulate the economy. Although George H.W. Bush famously called it voodoo economics, Ronald Reagan pursued what became broadly known as trickle-down economics. Under this theory, if the government were to provide enough tax breaks, especially to those who had the capacity to stimulate the economy by hiring people or expanding business, then they would inevitably generate more in taxes after the anticipated growth took off. Here's the main problem with that. People who are allowed to keep more don't necessarily reinvest it in their business, at least not in a way that increases their tax liability. After all, they argued for and accepted the tax cuts because they don't like paying taxes. Why would they do anything that grew their tax liability? With improvements in automation and better profit margins at factories overseas, they don't need to hire more people or expand business in the U.S. Shouldn't take a genius to figure out that trickle-down economics is nowhere near a sure bet to stimulate the economy, and by itself, it never has. More importantly, the federal government never curtailed spending to accommodate the initial lack of revenue expected during these phases of the tax cuts. In fact, government spending grew at the same time that revenue fell. This naturally creates a budget deficit from year to year. Less money in and more money out is not how you would run your household, and it's not a good idea to try to run the government that way either. However, the federal government can just print more money to pay for things if it really needs to, or expand its available credit line at will. I've been told by several credit card companies that I'm not allowed to do that. Doesn't seem fair if you ask me. The biggest areas of growth were the military and, later, at the urging of the Democratic-controlled Congress, the expansion of social programs. In the distant past, the federal government had tried to curtail spending when tax revenue was lagging. Of course, the work under FDR is a big 
exclusion to that general rule. That has not been the case in the past 40 years. Under both Democrats and Republicans, everyone shares in the blame to some degree here, the government has continued to hand out contracts and initiate programs while simultaneously writing more and more deductions and credits into the U.S. tax code. For instance, right now, there is a big push to wipe out the federally-backed student loans worth nearly $2 trillion. Most people who support this don't seem to realize that you can't just erase a number from one side of the ledger. That debt would also get erased as anticipated future revenue on the other side of the ledger from the national budget. You see, the representatives have tried to make the citizens of this country happy at both ends, by giving them what they want from the government while letting them keep their money in the form of tax cuts and rebates and that sort of thing. As a result, the national debt has soared. The national debt currently stands at over $30 trillion. That's 30 with 12 zeros behind it. Okay, that's still a little hard for everyone to grasp. Let's put it this way. Every taxpayer, if they were to assume their share of the national debt, would owe more than $240,000 just to pay off the national debt. Some of you could pay that off without blinking an eye. Well, okay, you have to blink. That's an automatic thing that happens to your face. But the point is, we all owe a lot of money, and not everyone can just write off $240,000. The national median income is just over $45,000. That means that a person earning the average in this country would have to forfeit all of their annual salary for at least five years to pay off their share of the national debt. And guess what? The national debt is growing at a much faster rate than average pay increases. Our elected officials, again on both sides, have allowed this national debt to grow to such an egregious level. It's unlikely that our currently elected officials will address this for two reasons. Number one, it's still theoretically a problem that can be corrected if we just bring in more revenue, while ideally restraining the spending that got us here in the first place. And number two, politicians continue to want people to be satisfied and keep them in office more than they want to do what needs to be done. In simpler terms, it's a problem of ego over reason. While the Founding Fathers complained about paying taxes and not getting the king to listen, we are seeing the exact opposite of that problem. No one really has to pay their share in taxes, and government representatives are trying to appease the people who voted them in. It's an unsustainable problem. Eventually, the national debt has to be dealt with. This means that taxes have to be raised and spending has to be cut. We're no longer joking about this. Otherwise, the children of today, and some of you Gen Z people, will become the adults of tomorrow who will likely face a national debt that cannot possibly be paid before we reach default. And when our federal government reaches default, there's going to be real problems, Great Depression type problems. We can avoid this if we just have the will, the will to assume drastic and uncomfortable changes, 
like the founding fathers did when they decided to form a new nation that would be more responsive to its citizens' needs. A will that has been sorely lacking in our regularly elected officials for the past 40 years. Thanks for joining us today. You have been listening to The American Farewell with Gary Wells. Until next time, keep dreaming, America.